fanatics driving vehicles into crowds of people and causing serious injuries and occasionally death. And what we are having is right-wing fanatics with automatic weapons shooting people regularly at protests. So, you know, now that's, uh, you know, it's a different situation. But it's it's perhaps kind of early. And here in New Hampshire, we have 400 members of the House. Some of them are really out there. And this one guy recently said, if you see a house with a Black Lives Matter sign, you can go in and burn it down. I'm serious. This, I mean, he's going to be wow. taken out. Well, you are also, aside from a uh, political activist, a musician, songwriter. How can people hear your songs? We're going to play one at the end, but how can people go to the Internet thingy and uh, find your music? Hey, as long as they can uh, spell my name, or even if they misspell it, they'll come uh, across my music. That's all they need to do. DavidRovix.com, or you know, they can look me up on Spotify or wherever. Okay. I'm on all the usual platforms. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And it's good to hear about what's going on there. I sense a little bit of optimism in you as well as in me. It's been two months now since that cop took a knee like a knee upon the neck of a whole society. Folks rose up all over, starting there in the Midwest. The National Guard came in upon the governor's request. Whenever people took the streets, riot cops attacked, shooting folks there in their faces and their backs. Flooding streets with tear gas, see how the people stand with masks upon their faces and leaf blowers in their hands. There have been drive-by shootings and weaponizing trucks That the death counts what it is so far is partly up to luck And partly up to barricades used to block the way So folks might live to fight another day is if they're not killed by agents of the state like the ones who came to portland to make america great to face a rainbow nation that says screw your white homeland with masks upon their faces and leaf blowers in their hands as they kidnap people off the streets here in the global north as the tear gas billows the poison belches forth as those who would be dictators make their power play as people from all over town face them down and say we don't want police a better world can be built perhaps it starts with someone's hand upon the hilt making tornadoes out of tear gas maybe not what mama planned with masks upon their faces and leaf blowers this in their hands. This is the rest of the boogie cat. Meow, meow. You're listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM Community Radio. When the farmer comes to town with his wagon broken down, the farmer is... Tune in to The Dirt Bag every second Wednesday of the month at 11 a.m. Learn to grow your tasty fruits and vegetables in your home garden. There is a monthly garden stumper, calendar of gardening events, you can even call in with your gardening questions. That's the Dirt Bag every second Wednesday, 11 to 12 a.m. That's on KBO Portland. Portland. Listen, Listen laugh, laugh, learn. The farmer is the man that feeds them all. Every single person since SB8 has been a law has needed to travel out of state. Every single person that's reached our line. We've been clinging on to Roe versus Wade and the protection that it offered. And it feels as though that protection is being taken away from us. So it, it feels as though this is a moment of survival. 
And I think any moments of survival can be very scary. What did abortion access look like in America when Roe was the law of the land? Tune into KBOO's Roe on the Rocks, a limited series podcast where I investigate this question as I take you through the months leading up to the U.S. Supreme Court decision that effectively overturned Roe. That's Roe on the Rocks, airing Thursdays at 9 a.m. You don't want to miss it. This is Naomi Brussel for Out FM. Today I'm speaking to Red Hamilton. Red, who uses they, them, and red pronouns, is a human rights activist with over 10 years of racial equity community work. Red uses their platform to challenge systems of power and uplift voices within their community. So welcome, Red. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Um, You're there in Portland right now, and we're trying to find out more about what's been happening in Portland and what the queer community, and particularly the queer community of color, has been involved with during this last few years and in the past. You know, we, we've been studying that a little bit. Uh, our last show was uh, focused on that, and this show we want to get some of, in, we're interested in what your experience has been. So welcome. Thank you. Um, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> you grew up in Portland. You want to tell us a little bit about what that was like? Yes, I am a Portland native. I grew up here in uh, North Northeast. I'm in Southeast right now. But I grew up around North and Northeast Portland. They call it the Columbia Villa. It was a housing project for low-income folks. It was a close-knit community. Everybody knew each other. I had a certain group of friends. The elementary school was like two blocks away. We would all walk to school together. And then in Northeast Portland, I lived in Northeast on 15th in a predominantly black neighborhood at that time before the second wave of gentrification. So yeah, I've been here pretty much all my life. I moved to California when I was 14 and then came back when I was 19. And I've stayed here since. And the Northeast area and also the, the north part of Portland became a black neighborhood later on. Not It wasn't earlier, many people had been moved from other parts of the city or had moved there from other parts of the city where they'd been forced out earlier. The Vanport area was- Right, that was the first wave of the- Evacuated. Gentrification. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were growing up in what was already an established black neighborhood. Yes. And what was the interaction like with, you know, in general, what what kind of experience of uh, acceptance or racism were you dealing with as you were growing up? Well, I didn't really know what racism was when I was a kid. When the police came around, it wasn't a lot of violence towards folks that weren't in gangs or something like that. Like, yeah, I didn't really experience it when I was a kid. There were so many people like my basketball coaches or teachers, they looked like me, they were black. So I can't say that I experienced that uh, racism when I was a kid. Now, as I got older, of course, I was in a different area and I experienced that in schools, jobs, things of that nature. You became an activist, you're saying 10 years ago, what got you into being an activist? I was at Portland Community College where I had, you know, decided to go back to school after 
being out for a little over 10 years. And at the same time, um, the Trayvon Martin case was going on. And I followed it religiously because I just, Mm -hmm. I was just like, I know this person is going to get convicted, you know? Um, And that was, and when he did. Let's let's remind people. Oh, Trayvon Martin Martin uh, was the young kid that was followed home by a civilian person who thought he was doing something wrong. He had a hood on. The person thought he was threatening and he got followed home and shot. And killed. And killed, yeah. Yeah, yeah George Zimmerman. So that really pretty much activated me and changed me in a way that just kind of made me want to do something. Made me want to, you know, participate in and activism. Um, I because had, Zimmerman was acquitted. He was acquitted. And that just it really hurt me. You know, it was just like, how? And that was really my first experience, really looking at the justice system as it was, like how it works. That, so That was Florida. Yeah. Uh, stand, your, stand your ground, right? And so, you know, there were so many things in that situation that just kind of like, oh, my God. So instead of being a bystander, I started wanting to know more about activism, know more about what that looked like. So I, being at PCC, joined uh, the Black Student Union because um, I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to lead people in that direction to empower folks to use their voice and their, the, you know, the First Amendment rights to protest and inequities. So I applied for the BSU coordinator, the Black Student Union coordinator at PCC, and I got it. And from and what's PCC? uh, Portland Community College. From that position, I utilized my position in education to reach students and community by doing uh, community engagement events, teaching folks about different messaging through media, through music, through different things like that to empower folks to utilize their voice. So we put on events throughout the year that would pretty much talk about the justice system, what the criminal, yeah, you know, what the criminal justice system looked like, how it worked, who it benefited, what community engagement looked like as far as participating in city council meetings, putting your voice out there having your three minutes to put into record. Yeah, just utilizing your voice to to bring awareness to inequities. And so you started, You start, then obviously you were connected to other people who were doing Right. Oh, I, Are you part of any organization at this point or any particular organization? I was connected to Don't Shoot Portland. What's that? It's a um, social justice organization that makes aware through community engagement and art projects and different things like that to raise awareness in, uh, for inequities. And in recent years, I mean, I'm, this has been going on for a while. Yes. You've been part of the fight against white supremacy and against the murdering of Black people, Black men in particular, Absolutely. in Portland. And Portland has had, a, a, especially in the past couple of years, a history of very intense days after days after days of protest. 
So you want, can you tell me something about, tell us what, what that was like if you were participating in it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it started with the presidency of Donald Trump. Oregon has a long history of uh, racism. They actually had exclusionary laws in their constitution. They were bold enough to put that in their constitution. So going from there and having this kind of covert racism in Oregon, kind of like microaggressions and not really saying things to your face, but you can tell people's energy and how they act towards you and different institution, educational jobs, just different systems. You know, you can tell that, you know, there's something there. But people then got really emboldened to be overtly racist and actually come out to rallies and come out to protest where uh, there was Trump rallies in Portland with white supremacist um, organizations, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, just to name a few, coming here to inflict harm on black folks, people of color, queer people, anything that did not uh, look like cisgendered, white, heteronormative status quo. It was really tough to be out there and fight for these inequities when you have these, you, you have the police violence, the, you know, you have the police violence and then you have the, the white supremacists looking to harm you. And then you had folks like Jeremy Christian. I don't know if y'all heard about the MAX. We have our, the transportation called the MAX. It's like a train. Well, this person belonged to a, a white supremacist um, organization in jail and he was let out and uh, people don't know, a lot of people don't know that the day before the Max um, attacks happened, another, a, a black activist that wasn't even an activist at the time, but became an activist after she was assaulted by Jeremy Christian, Demetria Hester, uh, she became an activist because nobody knew about the assault before the Max, um, the Max attack. Could you give us a little more detail about this Max attack? Sure, I was gonna, Continue, yeah, for okay, sure. Go ahead. So the Max attacks happened when Jeremy Christian got on the Max and started accosting two um, Muslim women. Actually, they weren't women, they were girls. So they were underage and started verbally assaulting them and, you know, yelling uh, racial epithets uh, to these young girls. And there was three white men on the Max that kind of was trying to de-escalate the situation and one of them he had a knife and nobody knew he had a knife and he just kind of waved his knife and he ended up killing two people and injuring very severely one person in particular who was a friend of mine Micah he was in the hospital for a long time but before that attack it was like he assaulted a black woman and there was no you know, there was no accountability. There was, nobody knew about it. She went to the police and it wasn't until the Max attacks happened where she brought her voice forward and was able to tell her story about what happened before that. So after the Max attacks, um, it was an influx of a lot of um, protesting against um, the way that his arrest played out. There was a video where he was drinking at a bus stop and the police, you know, tried to arrest him 
This is after he did the attack? After this he is after people? he did the attack. After he did the attack, the attack happened. He was, you know, somewhere at the bus stop drinking a beer, have, you know, you know, hanging out, and the police attempted to arrest him. And they didn't draw guns. He was, they were very careful with them. They did not show any signs of aggression towards this man who had just did this violent act. And that is a clear <laughs> indication of how police in Portland treats uh, people that look like him and people that look like me. Um, he was obviously arrested um, and there was a huge trial and during the trial he was still protected. They had a closed courtroom. They didn't allow people, which is a public place, right? <laughs> You're supposed to be able to go to court. Um, the way that all played out is just speaks to the culture of white supremacy in Oregon. So what about this, these protests that have happened in the past couple of years, particularly after the uh, murder of George Floyd? Yes, absolutely. You were involved with that. Could you tell us more about the involvement of the groups like Patriot Prayer and the Proud Boys and yes. the, the, what was going on in front of the federal building? Uh, yes, the there nightly... were... Um, protests yeah there was protest um in portland after the, the gruesome killing of george floyd and there was a lot of people out there and a lot of people very enraged at the fact that this was all caught on videotape it was very dangerous it was very yeah it was dangerous in different ways you know your safety from white supremacist groups coming down there and with uh the big trucks and their flags breaking up, sometimes driving through crowds of people. So of protesters. Was, yes, crowds of protesters or activists. I like to use activist. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people, you uh, you know, kind of deem protesters as like bad people or something because you know <laughs> you know what I mean. So, <laughs> Not I mean, us. We don't. Oh well, I'm just saying, like you know, a lot of people yeah. do that, but. Yeah, the protesters kind of driving through the street, um, trying to run over activists. There was a lot of vigilantes. Yeah, thank you. Um, mm -hmm. Coming to the protests with armed, with with guns, guns, and showing not, them. Yes, showing them, armed. You know, AK forty sevens and uh, pistols. Um, so it was very dangerous, and they would agitate the crowd by saying, you know, some racist, homophobic things. It was a lot of a lot of things going on, and your safety was always at risk, you know. And and the interaction with the police. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, the Portland police they used crowd control agents, the tear gas, the rubber bullets, or whatever to disperse the crowd. The tear gas is something that people use in wars, okay, and people use these agents to disperse crowds but if you've ever had an accident where you momentarily stop breathing or you know it's it's just not a good feeling and you have to get to fresh air really fast or you're you know you can cause serious damage and people were um, they were causing serious damage to protesters with these mm -hmm. tear gases and uh, rubber bullets um, 
they there were people going to the hospital um, with serious injuries they didn't have helmets on and the rubber bullets you would see people with you know helmets on with cans stuck in their helmet from canisters from these some these so-called non-lethal right what are called non-lethal munitions Yes. Flashbangs. I'm Flash just been bang, looking it up. Right. That's yeah. yeah. Sorry, tear gas. I said tear gas. Yeah. But yeah. The flashbangs. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that send projectiles against yeah. people. Yeah. So so what's happening nowadays? I mean, the the death of of the murder of June Knightley was a was kind of a shocking thing, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Even though it seems like with all this violent behavior by the police and by these uh white supremacists it was sort of maybe inevitable that something like this was going to happen or somebody was going to do something like this but how have people reacted to the death of the to the murder of june knightley and the attack on the other people yeah apparently i mean i can't really speak to that i wasn't there at that rally i have heard different folks you know talk to me about that and they're angry they're sad they're mad they're grieving because of this it's two things it's because people are starting to show up to protest armed and when you have a white supremacist ideology and you show up to protest against people that are protesting against racial injustices you are maybe you're apt to conflict violence on those folks that you know, are, you know, challenging white supremacy, you know, it's a terrible thing. I'm, you know, it's messed up that that happened. How do you think, I'm sure that the issues are very complicated, but for people of color who are queer or who are trans, what has been their experience with the police and the Proud Boys and other fascistic groups? The Proud Boys and the um, other white supremacist group, Patriot Prayer, they used to come, and they didn't really live here. They lived in other surrounding cities, Vancouver. They would come over, and they would um, literally go. We're and, talking about Vancouver, Washington, by the way. Yes, Vancouver, Washington. Yeah, it's very near Portland. Correct. Yeah, it's literally across the bridge. And they would come over and look for people of color and look for trans people and look for queer people to harm. Uh, there was uh, lots of folks, uh, trans folks, that were attacked because they weren't with a group of people by Proud Boys. Uh, safety is a definite concern mm-hmm. with these groups in within that setting when we were at the thick of it, yeah. It's just not safe because anything that's you know, against the status quo that's not white, cisgendered, heterosexual, they deem not normal, so they're going to inflict harm on folks, you know, sadly. Mm -hmm. So a lot of us go out in groups. We wouldn't leave a rally or protest alone. Uh, We have specific things that we would do to keep ourselves safe. Mm -hmm. So are you, it seems like then, it must be a bit at least scary at times to be at a protest oh, yeah. for, for you <clears throat> you you said something about not wanting people to know where you live or that kind oh, absolutely. of absolutely not a lot of people know where i live and i mean <laughs> not many people know where i live just because of the safety concern that i have for me but people are That's still true. fighting they haven't given oh, up oh yeah 
it yeah it's it's definitely calmed down a lot a lot of changes really? are being implemented i do want to briefly mention the trans woman that was found hanging by a tree in pal butte tt uh, gully um, where is that um it's in portland oregon it's uh-huh. a it's a kind of like a lookout a park but uh, they have a hiking trail um, she was a homeless woman. She was, and and she was killed. And and nobody really knows what happened. But a lot of these crimes that happen are overlooked by Portland police because when you're trans, when you're queer, you um, are less human, right? You don't have the rights. You don't have the rights of a of a cisgendered person. So it's you know it's. It's hard to even in that sense uh, to kind of want justice for a family member that is queer or trans, you know? So Red Hamilton, is there anything more that you want to tell our audience before we close? Um, Portland's a beautiful city, regardless of what's going it on. It is, I've um, been there many times. Yeah, it's a beautiful yeah. city. Um, there is a lot of great work happening here. There is a lot of change that has transpired because of these protests, because of national news. A lot of change is going on. A lot of people, uh, people of color in leadership positions, a lot of policies being implemented, a lot of things like that, that came out of the protests. A lot of people don't think that protest is a viable way to affect change, but it actually is. Um, It's definitely Mm -hmm. changed the way that people view uh, and navigate uh, different spaces and just thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement here in Portland me being a queer person I have to utilize my voice to center the voices that are not always heard to be visible enough and that to me is worth you know my safety well we are hoping for your safety and that you Absolutely. that you stay well and that you are not harmed and that the movement continues because we really don't have much choice about continuing. Yeah, we got to keep going. Yeah. Well, and and there has been an achievement. I mean, you actually had some defunding of the police. Absolutely. About a year or so ago, and there's yeah. a new law that has just been passed by the legislature that uh, limits what police are allowed to do in situations where they are doing so-called crowd control. Mm-hmm. So there is, there has been some movement yeah. in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Red, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you uh, letting our audience know what's been happening for you and for the queer and trans and people of color community in Portland, Oregon. And we hope to be in touch with you as the months are going by, see what develops. Absolutely. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. This is Saikon. I spend most of my time in North Carolina, but when I'm in the Pacific Northwest, I turn my dial to Kebu music for the rest of us. Oh, yeah. Welcome to World Ocean Radio. I'm Peter Neal, director of the World Ocean Observatory. Time and again in history, we hear of natural treatments for breaks, wounds, and diseases. Our ancestors brewed herbal teas, treated wounds with moss and leaves, and otherwise practiced a healing system derived from natural materials. 
The tradition continues in the practice of homeopathic medicine in various forms in both East and West, and the global industry in organic supplements that offer an alternative practice to the synthetic and expensive methodology that characterizes the healthcare system in the United States and elsewhere. As medicine has become standardized and mechanized and arbitrated by the insurance, pharmaceutical, and efficiency-driven practices of our time, we have lost some of that historical wisdom and its healing effect. We speak often in these editions of World Ocean Radio of the innovative and effective inventions of organizations in Iceland, a small country with a big heart, big ideas, and a powerful natural environment that provides not only its energy and food requirements, but also a basis for adaptation and invention of natural products and processes to drive its 21st century economy and culture. As Iceland relies heavily on fishing in its mix of finance and labor applications, it must stay competitive against larger industrialized fishing nations by maximizing the value of its fish products using 100% of the fish. This seems obvious, but in the U.S., for example, our industry wastes more than half by discarding bycatch, harvesting only specialized high-cost species, and failing to capture the added economic opportunity of such limited application and interest. In a June article in Bloomberg Businessweek, Lois partially reports on development of a fish-skin-based, FDA-approved treatment for chronic wounds and inflammation, 100% of the fish indeed. The only hint of its origin is a scale-like grid that also provides a matrix for binding around which new healthy skin can grow. I had seen this product in Reykjavik, but it was not yet approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration until late last year. Called Omega-3 Wound, the product is produced by Kerasis Limited, a small company located in Isfjordur, a town of 3,000 inhabitants with a limited economy based on fishing and small-scale tourism that now has a new employer at work. According to Fertram Sigurd Johnson, CEO of Kerasis, the product has taken nine years to develop and test successfully using the skin of codfish caught locally, cleaned, dried, sterilized, and packaged for treatment of chronic wounds, burns, oral cancer, internal cosmetic and reconstructive surgeries, and other applications for the reduction of inflammation and pain. The market implication is huge. According to Parshree's article, quote, some six and a half million Americans suffer from chronic wounds, whether related to vascular disease, diabetes, or complications from normal procedures. The five-year survival rate is 54%, and treatments cost more than $25 billion a year, unquote. Partially continues, quote, The U.S. Department of Defense is on the lookout for better burn treatments because of the increase in service wounds from improvised explosive devices. In a study conducted by the U.S. Army Institute for Surgical Research, the fish skin bested the healing rates of cadaver skin, a common military treatment for burns. The Army has also funded several further studies showing that unlike rival products, fish skin can ward off bacteria and reduce bleeding." Unquote. So what we have here is a turning of the circle of knowledge, the rediscovery and reapplication of the healing property of fish oil, harvested as a value added from a traditional food product, enabling new employment for fishing communities and innovative, more powerful treatments for the injuries of modern war and of many other conditions that can be better and faster healed by a natural process derived from the ocean. That is the true message here, that the ocean has such an enormous, known and unknown implication for human health. 
When we fail to use it well, or worse, when we despoil or exhaust it, we are depriving ourselves and our children from its healing properties, in a simple bandage, a new medicine, or the purity of the food we eat, the water we drink, and the air we breathe. The sea connects all things. We will discuss these issues and more in future editions.